The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events happening throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And our podcast episodes frequently draw upon these classes and events for our content. This week, we are excited to have Ira Siff on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast for the very first time. And Ira is currently a commentator on the Met's Saturday broadcasts, but also teaches and coaches opera, and even used to run his own opera spoof company. His love of opera and the Met started in his teenage years as he stood in line for standing room tickets at the old Met in the early 1960s. Just in case any of you don't know, the current Metropolitan Opera House opened in 1966, and before that, the opera company was based out of its original home, dubbed the Golden Horseshoe. Today's episode is the first of three lectures in which Ira Sif regales us with his memories of the Golden Horseshoe, talking about his experiences and the legendary singers that he saw along the way. And of course, we will feature many musical clips of these singers as we take this walk down memory lane. So please enjoy part one of Memories from the Golden Horseshoe. I know I look better on radio. <laughs> it's really nice to see all of you, many of you, every year. It's really a pleasure. Uh, you know, I remember in the 1980s there was such a thing as theme bar mitzvahs. They were lavishly produced receptions that followed the far less important religious aspect in which a concept would be created perhaps around a hobby or a particular fascination of the bar mitzvah boy in question. I remember a friend of mine went to a sci-fi themed bar mitzvah called Seymour's Journey Through Time. <laughs> well, today we're going to have Ira's Journey Through Time, uh, an operatic trip through memory lane featuring some of the artists and some of the roles that ignited and shaped my particular opera fanaticism and outlook. And through the years, I've endeavored to bring to my guild lectures and to my private lecture groups uh, artists I've discovered and love who are compelling for different reasons. I've surveyed Russian singers, French singers, Italian singers, dead singers, and often lesser known singers. But uh, the, these three talks about the old Met will be full of more famous names and voices because my formative years were spent on the standing room line, as Kyle said, at the old Met and the Met has always been a place that features stars. It's easy to attach the label golden age to a particular era. And uh, some days somebody might even 
think this is a golden age because of the proliferation of, of Handel singers and Rossini singers we have. Uh, I would not begin to pretend that the Met 1961 to 66 was a golden age. I saw more dreck on that stage. <laughs> but uh, some of it was wonderful, colorful dreck that later inspired my own uh, endeavors, my opera spoof company, La Grande Chena, that I had for about 30 years. I owe a great debt of gratitude to Ettore Bastianini for uh, being murdered in Tosca, and then after he was dead, moving into a more comfortable position. <laughs> I owe Zinka Milanov for uh, sitting up and pulling her nighty down back over her ankles and then lying down again so she could be strangled by Otello. I owe Richard Tucker for everything. But there were also brilliant and inspired moments of voice and artistry that I will never forget. And wherever possible, I've dug up mementos uh, to share with you over these three weeks of golden memories from the Golden Horseshoe. And it seems most apt to be doing this now as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of seeing the old house go down. The way I came into opera at 15 was through a high school chum called Robert Misbin, whose family actually liked this thing called opera. Growing up in New York, I'd been taken to Broadway shows. I had seen uh, plays and musicals before miking, before Disney, before the ubiquitous standing ovulation. <laughs> I had seen Pajama Game and West Side Story and Gypsy and My Fair Lady and uh, Inherit the Wind with Paul Muni. Nobody stood. An Evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May, all this great theater, but I knew nothing from opera. Uh, we had a few classical recordings at home and some, uh, some Broadway original cast albums. We had a Danny Kaye album, and we had a, an RCA Victor LP sampler, which featured Caruso, Mario Lanza, and Elvis. <laughs> the only singers I knew uh, from opera had provided the culture portion of the Ed Sullivan Show which my grandmother always resolutely referred to as the Ed Solomon Show, <laughs> with the pianist Van Kleinberg, the June Talmud dancers. But all of this changed in November of 1961 when Bob Misbin and I went to the opera. Our first attempt at standing room tickets offered uh, un it was unsuccessful, alluring photos of the opening night to come with Leontine Price on a horse and Richard Tucker in a cowboy hat for La Fanchula del West ended up unfulfilled because we discovered when we arrived that the standing room, which was all we could afford, was sold out. So we went home and a few weeks later we came back for a rather unremarkable Saturday matinee, La Boheme, with Lucina Mara as Mimi and uh, Daniele Barioni was a Rodolfo uh, the only real delight of that uh, performance was the name of the baritone, Lorenzo Testi. <laughs> but the old house with its red and gold horseshoe somehow immediately felt like home. And uh, standing in the freezing cold for a $1.25 standing room ticket, listening to the old men on the line, who were probably younger than I am now, talk about how no one can sing anymore was somehow an appropriate part of the punishment and the reward that was being a standee in the 60s. 
On December 21st, 1961, at my second opera, we hit pay dirt. Joan Sutherland's final Lucia of her debut season with Richard Tucker as Edgardo, both in top form. I had never seen or heard anything like Sutherland's performance. I had never heard anything as clarion as uh, Richard Tucker's voice in the final scene of the opera. I had never seen an audience go as berserk as this audience went, especially after the mad scene where Joan got 28 curtain calls. Leighton Kerner, who reviewed that performance, summed it up perfectly. He said, Sutherland, uh, you remember him, he was the Village Voice music critic, a great critic, actually. Sutherland left those who heard her with nothing to do but gasp at the memory of what they had heard. In the mad scene came a musico-dramatic display such as perhaps not even Donizetti dreamed of, dashing about and crouching in corners, seemed to be the incarnation of Ophelia we have all wanted to see on stage. The broken recitative snatches of melodic reminiscences take on a sudden power. The notorious vocal cadenza with flute accompaniment, heretofore the silliest musical passage ever penned, now becomes lightning flashes of hallucination. Lucia seems to chase the flute sounds in every direction with vocal imitations that take on an increasing bravura. She hears one flute roulade from the general direction of the opera house's grand tier, and back it flashes from her throat. The next is a salvo at the top balcony. The third she delivers with her back to the audience, and it bounces off the rear of the stage back into the auditorium with thrilling and uncanny clarity. Then finally, her slow, ecstatic reprise of the first act love duet with the flute sounds circling dizzily in the background, going into the second aria, Spargi da Maropianto, ending with a fortissimo top high E flat that hits the listener like an arrow. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Lucia mad scene in what will become the Sutherland tradition. Although I have, don't have a recording of that exact performance, I have come up with one from the Lucia that started it all for Sutherland, the one at Covent Garden, directed by Zeffirelli. That was her breakthrough shortly before her Met debut. We're going to listen to the final third or so of the mad scene, including that flute obligato and that gentle cabaletta, Spargi d'Amaro Pianto. This is Joan Sutherland in a section of the mad scene from Lucia. There are texts in... Uh, your sheets if you want them, or just close your eyes and go into the realm of ecstasy with me.
after that night, I left my friend Bob in the dust standing at the opera several times a week or whenever my entire lack of a budget would allow. And uh, Bob became a doctor. I became a diva. And <laughs> I remember my father worked at 1407 Broadway, which was uh, one block north. And so I would strategically hide behind another standee when he would be going home to work. <laughs> when I'd see him get down into the 40th Street entrance of the subway, I knew it was safe to stand back up again because he thought I was doing an art project at Cooper Union that night. <laughs> the phenomenal success of Sutherland led Rudolf Bing to temporarily embrace bel canto operas and before replacing the gazillion-year-old Lucia uh, production in which both Collis and Sutherland had appeared, he produced a new sonambula for uh, Joan Sutherland. It was an opera that had been done at the Met not since the 1934-35 season where it was done for Lily Pons. The character of Amina has an enormous amount of wonderful music to sing as it was composed for Giuditta Pasta. And I remember uh, this young Italian standee, heavily accented guy complaining uh, near me in the standing room line that, uh, that Sutherland did not equal Callas, whom he had seen at La Scala in the role, who was, of course, more alluring physically with a, a great sense of pathos. I was, um, you know, happy to have them both in my artistic life. Uh, and uh, as much as I love Collis's, I mean, maybe more than Sutherland's, no one but no one could touch uh, Joan when it came to cabalettas. All the fast coloratura passages in the operas were uh, simply not possible to even believe you were hearing. Most of all, the final one in La Sunambula, Amina's Anonjunje Oman Pensiero, in which she uh, has been sleepwalking into unfortunate bedrooms and has been found by her boyfriend in one and then is uh, proven to not be a slut but rather a sleepwalker. And at the end of the opera, her boyfriend discovers this, and they are re-engaged to be married, and she's quite happy, so of course she sings a lot of fast notes. And no one sang them faster than Joan. So we're going to see a clip from exactly that time, 1963, when the Bell Telephone Hour filmed her when she was in New York doing the new production of La Sunambula at the Met, singing uh, Anonjunje.
I was too young and stupid to know that uh, I'd never hear the likes of that again as long as I lived. Uh, the phenomenal success of Joan and what she meant to me at that point in my life led me to continue to go to the opera um, with great regularity. And uh, after that, Lucia, and before that, Sonambula, there had been some other memorable outings to the Met. Uh, Bob and I did finally get to see Leontine Price. Uh, she had had a disaster, actually, with that Fanchula del West that we didn't get into. And she took several months off to recuperate vocally. And she came back in uh, April in Tosca. And uh, it was with uh, Franco Corelli as Mario and Cornel McNeil as Scarpia. It was my first Tosca, my first Price, my first Corelli. Uh, and it led me to understand at that uh, young age that uh, there could be exciting singing that had no coloratura in it. From that very performance, we're going to hear two selections. First, Price's stunningly rich and beautiful Visidarte, and then Corelli's passionate E Lucevan Le Stelle. Price sings with care and a bit of caution after the Fanchula disaster the previous fall, but she leaves no doubt that her liquid soprano survived the crisis and then some. Corelli made a specialty of this aria, uh, which I heard him sing subsequently in performances of Tosca with uh, Renata Tibaldi and then the next season with Maria Callas. With his long diminuendo, his sustained delivery of the line, it never failed to bring down the house. His matinee-eyed looks did not hurt. Um, and my, my friend Bob's mother, Miriam Misbin, was so passionate about Franco that we used to tease her. Once when we all went to see Ernani and Franco uh, canceled at the last minute, was replaced by Arturo Sergi, Miriam was so verklempt she threatened to kill herself by jumping out of the grand tier. <laughs> so here are two selections from, I'm not making this up. <clears throat> uh, two selections from that Tosca, my first Tosca, uh, Leontine Price's Visitarte, Franco's E Lucevan Le Stelle.
It was shortly after that uh, Tosca that I discovered acting in opera, and to be specific, operatic acting, as opposed to film or TV or theater acting, which we seem to favor these days in opera. I had accidentally discovered vocal acting when I took my 16th birthday money from my parents and went to E.J. Corvettes in Brooklyn to buy Joan's three LP set of The Complete Lucia. It was sold out, and so to diminish the disappointment, I took home something called Highlights from Lucia. On the cover was this fascinating-looking creature who seemed to use magic marker as eyeliner. She was called Maria Callas. When I got home and played it, I had my parents call the uh, repairman for the turntable because I thought something was wrong. Collis's voice was oscillating and sounded like she had potatoes in her mouth. Sidney, the repairman, said, it's not the turntable, it's the soprano. <laughs> but then an odd thing happened. My horror at this voice turned into a compulsion to re-listen to certain phrases over and over. They were so compelling. I would cloister myself away in my parents' finished basement and put on the Collis Lucia LP for hours. I wore the thing out, literally. I was subjugated. But the revelatory performance concerning operatic acting on stage first came for me from Leonie Riesenich. It was a Saturday evening Otello in the then new Eugene Berman production, and she was singing uh, opposite James McCracken as Otello. Riesenich had made her debut in 1959, replacing Maria Callas as Lady Macbeth when Bing fired Callas in a fit of pique over her desire not to sing Lucia and Lady Macbeth back to back. She said, the voice is not an elevator that just goes up and down, you know. It was also really about her refusal to go on the uh, 
very necessary Met Spring Tour at that point. Uh, Riesenick had a sensational debut, so sensational that unfortunately, Bing decided the next season she should sing Abigaile in Verdi's other early opera, Nabucco. This role did not suit anything except her high notes, and by the end of the run had severely damaged her voice. So she went into a vocal crisis that lasted several years. And some of the public who had so adored her turned on her. The fanatic fans of other divas like Tabaldi and Milanov indulged in crank calls and even death threats to Riesenig. Having received a death threat the afternoon of this performance of Otello, Leone, who was a highly strung, you might say unstrung, creature on stage under normal circumstances, was like a creature possessed. And at the end of the performance, she made a curtain speech in which she said, if you don't like me, don't come to hear me, but please don't threaten to kill me. <laughs> I thought that was a reasonable request. <clears throat> But that night, when Leone entered as Desdemona, from all the way up in the family circle standing room, I could see how mesmerized with love she was gazing at her Otello as if in a trance. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anything like the third act duet when he dragged her screamingly, helplessly off stage at the end of the duet where he keeps demanding the fazzoletto, the handkerchief. The house erupted in spontaneous applause. The following Saturday, on my 18th birthday, there was a broadcast. Bing banished the standees from the performance, deciding to punish everyone for the craziness of those few people who made the threats. He decided they must have been standees, because standees were obviously the most passionate people at the opera. From that performance, we are going to hear part of the Act Three duet with Riesenick and McCracken. Neither has a classically beautiful voice, nor does Leone sound like your typical Desdemona, but the intensity of this performance between the two of them is overwhelming. And suddenly I understood that there was a style of operatic acting that went beyond naturalism, a sort of super truth. McCracken and Riesenick were both on fire, possessed by the drama. They were truly, in the best sense of the word, that highest of operatic states of being, demented. So we're going to hear part of the Act Three duet from Otello with Leonie Riesenick and James McCracken from 1964, February 15th. <laughs> Stop, 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 
candido giglio nella tua fronte scritto Ahimè che non sei forse un fil cortigiano stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't mess with him either. Yeah, exactly. Among the baritones who resonated for me, literally and figuratively, uh, I had just missed Leonard Warren, who unfortunately had died on stage the previous year, but I made it for the prime of Cornell McNeil and the late-ish career of the marvelous Tito Gobi. The baritone I saw most often was Robert Merrill, whose rich, beautiful instrument was not really backed up by the artistry that made it quite riveting and Ettore Bastianini was in decline, uh, which turned out tragically to be throat cancer. McNeil did not overwhelm me on my first hearing, that Tosca with Price and Corelli, because his Scarpia, although beautifully sung, was less developed dramatically, vocally and physically at that point than later. But in Verdi, it was another story. The Bergonzi Price McNeil Ernani that I saw, my first Ernani, stayed with me, remained with me forever. In the third act of Verdi's early masterpiece, there's a great aria for the king, uh, Carlo. The aria, surely one of Verdi's very greatest for baritone, is built over a haunting repeated figure on solo cello as Carlo questions the values of his Verdani, his young years. Up to this time, the acquisition of power and wealth ruled his life. As he vows to make this change to magnanimity, magnanimity, the music broadens with a melodic sense of true majesty and grandeur, supported by a crescendo for both the voice and the orchestra. And McNeil always interpolated a sensational high A flat ending uh, that aria that inevitably brought down the house. Uh, we're going to listen to that aria with uh, Cornell McNeil from Ernani. Oh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it was incredible. In the house, it always annoyed me. You can hear on the recording, you can hear the note. In the house, people would get so excited. As soon as he reached it, they'd start to scream. And then I think, well, I missed the note. I hear the note. In 1965, the unexpected happened. After an absence of seven years, Collis and Bing kissed and made up, and she returned, albeit as Tosca, one of the only two roles she was essaying at that time, the other being Norma in Paris, a role that she could not risk doing at the Met at that point of time with her hugely compromised vocal resources. For Collis's return as Tosca, I camped out on the street in the freezing cold for three days and two nights. For an innocent boy from Brooklyn, what went on in some of those sleeping bags <laughs> was truly eye-opening. I must say it was the first time and the last time I ever saw a grown man apply cold cream on 39th Street and Broadway before crawling into a sleeping bag. While we stood in the line, uh, Franco Corelli and his wife Loretta came and worked the line. He was scheduled to appear with Callas and Tito Gobi in these performances of Tosca, not a shabby cast. Uh, Franco and Loretta came to the line wheeling a cart of hot coffee and donuts. Loretta had their little poodle, uh, Romeo, in her arms. And as she approached you, she would ask suspiciously, are you here for Callas or Corelli? <laughs> I was certain that if you said Callas, the poodle would bite you. <laughs> so thinking on my freezing feet, I blurted out, Gobi. <laughs> I got the coffee, but no donut. <laughs> Several days after we got our tickets, a bunch of us went out to the recently renamed Idlewild Airport, now called Kennedy Airport, to make sure that La Callas actually turned up. We stood up in this high place, uh, and it was blocked by, partly by an overhang. But as soon as we saw a pair of fat ankles and the bottom of a mink coat come in, we all started to scream. I don't think the people at Kennedy Airport knew what hit them. Fortunately, it was not today's security world. So they let us then run down and greet the diva. I'm fond of saying that Collis and Gobi made you feel watching Tosca as if you were peeking through a keyhole at the real events upon which an opera was later based. This live video excerpt taped by the BBC of Covent Garden really says it all. It has the usual inaccuracies of rhythm, especially in the murder scene that, that always creep into it in live performance when people get carried away. Uh, but it is uh, a spectacular, spectacular excerpt. And I must say that since these performances of Tosca, I've never been able to, I've performed the opera, even the title role, but I've never been able to watch a Tosca and feel satisfied, really, uh, the way uh, I did watching Callas and Gobi in action. The tenor in this uh, excerpt, if he appears, I think he's been dragged off by now, was Renato Cioni, not Corelli, but anyway. Callas and Gobi in, as Tosca. Quanto? Quanto? Il prezzo! <laughs> 
So uh, that about wraps it up for today. We're going to he be hearing actually from Mr. Bergonzi, who was not allowed to sing today, but we'll be hearing from him next week and a lot of other people that bring back a lot of memories. So see you then. Thank you so much for listening to episode 29 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed reminiscing on these singers of an age gone by, or perhaps being introduced to some of these voices for the very first time. We will be presenting parts two and three of Memories of the Golden Horseshoe throughout the summer, so you can keep an eye out for those as they come. Next week on the Met Opera Guild podcast, for our 30th episode, we will be presenting a very exciting tribute to Maestro James Levine as he completes his final season as the Met Opera Musical Director. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to receive automatic downloads of this and other episodes as soon as they become available. As always, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. Thank you.